0: Good morning again. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for joining us this morning on Facebook or on our webcast or on television. Thank you again for being here. We are glad that you are here with us, and we're beginning a series of messages called Firefall. We're going to talk about an Old Testament prophet, and he really is mentioned several times in the New Testament. I'll get to that in a few minutes to give you a little background on him. Um, But uh, we're going to begin this series of messages this morning through the life of Elijah, there's an unusual phenomenon that takes place occasionally uh, in Yosemite National Park in California. There is a waterfall called Horsetail Falls, and it flows over the top of El Capitan, the most, one of the most famous peaks in, uh, in the Yosemite Valley. And at a certain time of year, if there's been just the right amount of snowfall, because those waterfalls are snowmelt, If there's just the right amount of warmth to begin melting that snow and ice pack as we move toward February and and March, and if the sun is striking the mountain at just the right angle, that waterfall late in the day changes colors. The rays of the sun begin to strike it and reflect off of it, and that waterfall turns a bright red, orange, yellowish sort of color, and it literally looks like fire is falling off of the side of the mountain. Millions of people want to see it, but... It's kind of tricky to to find the date with COVID. It's been even more tricky with restrictions to get into the park. But it actually happened starting last Saturday, and it went all the way to Thursday of this week. But by Friday, the position of the sun had moved, and it was gone. You have to have just the right conditions, like I said: right amount of snow, right amount of warmth. Can't be cloudy, um, or else you miss it. A firefall is a in a brilliant event, and it's so brilliant and so popular in Yosemite National Park, that for a few years, there was this hotel operator in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And they decided that what they would do is they would simulate the firefall. That in the summer uh, summer months when the waterfall was dry, it wasn't there wasn't even water coming over it, they would burn these big vats of, of wood and burn it down to embers. And at about nine o'clock at night, they would tilt those vats up and push those embers over the side of the falls, and it would create this fake firefall almost. It, It wasn't the real thing, and it wasn't nearly as good as the real thing. Well, spiritually, what I desire to see God do in our lives is a firefall. We want the fire of God's Spirit to fall upon us. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And fire is a symbol of his presence and power all through Scripture. And there are moments in the life of Elijah when the fire literally falls. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. But what I'm really wanting us to see is that God wants to do something special in our lives personally. I believe God wants to do something in the life of our church. And God wants to do something through us to impact our world. But in order for that to happen, we are going to have to have the fire of passion reignited in our heart. I'm asking God for the fire to fall, to wake us from our spiritual sleepwalking, from our going through the motions, from our apathy to reignite in us a passion for seeing our friends come to know Jesus. I'm asking God to bring a firefall into my life, to tear down idols, to tear away things that distract me and to the things that I look, for, look to for fake fulfillment that are like a thirsty man drinking salt water. It only leaves you wanting more. But to bring into our lives a real spiritual fire for God and for truth. What I'm asking God to do is to move some of us from our compromised position back to conviction about the faith and about the things of God. I'm asking God to move some of us from taking our Christianity from a level of convenience to a level of commitment. I believe that only happens when in a powerful move of God, we see his fire fall on us, in us, and then through us. And some circles, they would, they would use a word for this, but for many of you, it almost makes you want to run backwards, and that is the word revival. Now, for some of you, when I say the word revival, your immediate thought is, he's going to make us come to church every night this week. No, that's that's what we call those meetings, and they were intended to spark something in us, and sometimes it happened. But a revival is what happens in the hearts of God's people when He reignites their passion. When we've gone astray, when we've had our head turned by the things of the world, when we've been infected with false philosophies, and God burns away all of those distractions, and He focuses back on pure devotion to Jesus. Well, in the Old Testament, there is a story of a man that God used... For a mighty firefall. Both literally, it happens in a couple of chapters we'll get to, and spiritually, that God reignited the love of his people for himself. He is considered the mightiest of the Old Testament prophets. In Jewish life, even to this day, Elijah is seen as the pinnacle of the prophets. When John the Baptist is introduced to us in the Gospels. We're told that he would come reflecting the kind of ministry that Elijah had. Listen to what Luke wrote about John the Baptist in Luke 1.17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Meaning his ministry would reflect what Elijah did in the Old Testament. There's another moment when Peter, James, and John are climbing this mountain with Jesus and all of a sudden, it's as if Jesus' humanity can no longer contain his deity, the fact that he's God. And he begins to glow. He becomes radiant like light. And they see Jesus in all his glory. And alongside him, they see Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah was there, symbolizing the law and the prophets as they say, Jesus, you are the fulfillment of law and prophets, you are the perfect Messiah. And you're to go to the cross and fulfill your mission. But there's one other mention of Elijah in the New Testament that always gets my attention. It's James chapter five, verse 17. Here's what James wrote. Elijah was a man just like us. You see, I think sometimes we make a mistake we believe these Old Testament characters especially were somehow spiritual superheroes that had capacities far beyond our own abilities. Elijah was special because God used him. Elijah did have some certain abilities, but they were employed in him by God. And he was a man just like us. It's not that he could attain something that you can't get to. That God could use you in similar ways to some mighty Old Testament prophet. When we were in the shelter-in-place thing back in the spring, my wife and my daughter and I uh, started a little fun project for entertainment. You know, there were no sports. All the live events were canceled. And so we had to find something to do. And what we decided to do was... We watched every Marvel movie in the order that you're supposed to watch them in the Marvel universe. Not not the way, not the order they were made, but the order that they fall in the in the storyline. It's really interesting to do that, and we love those characters. And my favorite character is Thor. I I just happen to like Thor a lot. But all of those characters, they are superhuman. They are beyond human. And the truth is that sometimes we look at at biblical characters, and we think they are beyond human, and they're not. They were simply used greatly by God, and he wants to do the same thing in our lives. The truth is this, that we are living in similar times to the days of Elijah. Now, our technology is better and different, and there are aspects of our lives certainly that don't reflect ancient Hebrew life. But many of the same things that were happening in the time of Elijah are happening in our world today. Wickedness seems to be increasing. There is the encroaching crush of pagan philosophy. Even people who are followers of Christ are being led astray to believe things that are contrary to God's word. And we need a revival we need a drawing back to God. We need a sense of, of an awakening in our hearts because these are dark days. And I want you to understand one thing very clearly, and that is that dark days are times when we need the fire of God to fall. Enter Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 introduces us to him. We're going to focus mainly on this verse and a little background to it for the rest of our time this morning. First Kings 17, 1 Kings 17:1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah emerges as this confrontational prophet at a time in history when a word from God is needed. Now let me give you a little bit of background so that you understand the times in which Elijah lives. I realize that some of you don't like history, but here's what you need to understand. If you don't understand this history, you won't get why this is so important. When when Israel asked God to give them a king there were 12 united tribes. And those united tribes became the nation of Israel. And they had one king over all those tribes. The first king was Saul. He was followed by David. And the third king was Solomon. But when Solomon died, there was a civil war. Ten of the tribes broke away and they kept the name Israel. They became the northern kingdom. Two of the tribes were Judah, and they were the southern kingdom. And here's what you need to know, because when some of you try to read the Bible through and all that, this gets really confusing. What's Israel? What's Judah? Who's the king of what? You try to read First Kings, and it's convoluted, and you're like, I can't figure all this out because it kind of goes back and forth. We're going to focus on that northern kingdom, the one called Israel. From the death of Solomon, when that civil war broke out, until 722 BC, probably a little over a couple hundred years, Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings, 19. Of those 19 kings, they went O for 19. There wasn't a single one of them that good things are said about. Every single one of those kings was wicked. Now, can you imagine living in a country where leader after leader after leader is wicked and each one seems to get more evil than the next? I'll, I'll show you this. In, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, there's a king named Omri. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. And acted more wickedly than all who were before him. He like took the prize. He was more wicked than all the rest who were before him. He was the worst of the worst, it seems. But then he died. And his son became king, Ahab. First Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab... The son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Now, And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He like watched dad and he said, I can even be more evil than dad. I can outdo dad. I'm a chip off the old block. And I will even be worse. Verse 31 it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he, Ahab, married, and there's her name, Jezebel. It has never, that name has never been on the top 10 list of baby girl names. Never. It it hasn't been there. Because even if you don't know a lot about her biblically and you're going to learn about her over the next few weeks, what you know is this. Her name is like a synonym for evil, for bad. And nobody would do that to their precious little baby girl. He marries Jezebel. Look back at those verses. The daughter of Eth Baal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he, that's Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. That's another idol. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You could take all the other 18 and add up their column and just put Ahab over here and he he outdid them all. He was more wicked. He was more evil. But there are a couple things that are kind of interesting in this background that I want you to notice. Of all the other 18 kings of the northern kingdom, we don't know the name of a single one of their wives except Jezebel. None of the other queens are mentioned. Only the kings. Only Jezebel is talked about. Now, why is that? Two reasons. Number one... Because she was the one who was really calling the shots. Ahab was a puppet on a string for Jezebel. Whatever she wanted, he did. She could manipulate him. She could control him. She could somehow coerce him to do things. And he would do it all in the name of the love of Jezebel. Secondly, it was Jezebel through Ahab who introduced and normalized this false religious worship of an idol, of a false god named Baal in Israel. Her dad's name was Eth Baal. He was named after this false god. Baal was the god that the Sidonian people, because he was the king of Sidon, Baal was the god they worshipped and they revered. And Baal was, was supposed to be the God who made rain and who made crops grow. Now that's really important for our study. Kind of grab that one. If you, didn't, if you missed a lot of the other stuff I've said in background, Baal was the false god of rain and the crops. And so Ahab not only adopts Jezebel's god, but he goes so far as to build a temple to Baal in israel this is the land that yahweh the one true god of israel has given them and he erects this this temple to baal and he builds an altar to baal in this temple and he's leading the people astray and then walks in this prophet in Gen- or rather in first kings chapter 17 verse 1 we are introduced to Elijah, and we don't know anything about him other than what we're told right here as, until we move forward. Who was this guy? What's he all about? What did he say? What did he do? What makes this important? Well, let me give you three aspects of Elijah's life and ministry that are really important here. Here's the first one. God looks for special people in dark times. When the days are dark and when evil is advancing and when it looks like our world is pulling away and turning away from worship of the one true God, God is looking for someone to step up. And Elijah is that guy. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, Elijah was born for this. At least he was named for it. His name, Elijah, comes from three Hebrew words, El Elohim. It's the Hebrew word for God. Yah, Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel. And that I in the middle, when joined like that in, a, in, in Hebrew, is a word for my or mine. You see, when Elijah introduced himself, what he was saying is, my God is Yahweh. He walks in and confronts Ahab, who has turned away and turned a nation away from the true God to worship Baal. And when he introduces himself, his name is, my name is, my God is Yahweh. It was a direct confrontation. He was an in-your-face kind of prophet. And God is looking for people who will stand up and be counted, who will be used You say, well, Bob, how did Elijah know that he was supposed to do this? I mean, we don't have like a Moses burning bush experience. We don't have any of that in Elijah's life. How did he know? Well, I can tell you how you can know what God wants you to do. And maybe it's what Elijah experienced. Have you ever seen something and thought to yourself, somebody ought to do something about that? Somebody ought to say something about that. And it becomes a burden in your life. Let me help you with this. Your burden is your ministry. Maybe you're married and you've gone through some struggles and you see some other young couples who are struggling. And you say, you know what? Somebody ought to help them. Go look in the mirror, point at the mirror and say, somebody ought to help them. And just freeze right there and look at who you're pointing to. It's you. You see a generation of young people who desperately need truth and guidance because seven days a week, either from education or from modern media, they are inundated with pagan thoughts and anti-God philosophies. Somebody ought to do something about that. Somebody ought to mentor those kids. Somebody ought to teach their life group. Somebody ought to do that. Go look in the mirror. Your burden is your ministry. And I believe Elijah looked at his culture that was falling apart and saw a king that was leading a whole nation astray, building temples to false gods, and he said, somebody ought to do something about that. And God said, Elijah, that would be you. God is looking for people, not superhuman people, but people that he can empower To go, to plant churches, to teach, to disciple, to confront a culture that's gone awry. Second, God surprises us with who he chooses to use in dark times. Here's all we really know about Elijah's background. He is called Elijah the Tishbite, who was from the settlers of Gilead. Biblical archaeologists, and archaeology is a science, archaeologists have discovered a lot of places that are mentioned in the Bible. It gives historical validation to the stories of the Bible. These were real places. These were real people. They're not fantasies. They're not myths. They're not works of fiction. People like this really existed in real places. However a place called Tishba has never been discovered and there's a reason for that it was in the place the land of Gilead now Gilead was a region on the eastern side of the Jordan River and it was wide open spaces it was pasture land it was it was uh, maybe dotted with a village here and a village there but if the water dried up here the village would go away and there'd be nothing left and the sands of time just erased it that's probably what happened to Tishba but the people who lived there were rugged people. Think of the settlers of the Old West. The people who first came to Wichita Falls and said, this is it, paradise, a place to live. The people who first came here had to be rugged. They had to be tough. They were outdoor kind of people, right? That's that's what Gilead was like. And even at that, they were always considered a bit unsophisticated, uncouth. When you compare that with what the Bible says about Elijah being kind of like John the Baptist, they didn't didn't dress like other people. John the Baptist wore this coat of camel hair. And he wore a leather belt, which sounds odd, uh, maybe that we would think that's that's crude, but it was in that day and age. And here's what I see. I, I see Ahab... And his court, all of his yes men, all of the people who bowed and scraped to him. And they had on their silk robes. And in walks Elijah. Camel hair, scraggly hair on his head, a beard that's kind of unkept. He walks in, he's uncouth, he's unsophisticated. This is a Garth Brooks moment. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. Remember that? This is is Elijah. And we're shocked that God would use him. I mean, why wouldn't God call somebody more erudite, more sophisticated? No, God wants to use Elijah and God wants to use you. There's so many of you say, oh, Bob, I can't do that. I'm not qualified. Let me tell you this. God does not call the qualified. God will always qualify the called. If God speaks it into your heart to do it, you need to obey and he will make a way. But third, the third aspect of Elijah's life that you need to be aware of is that God speaks a strong message In dark days, God speaks a strong message in dark days. Elijah's message was not about sunny days and positive thinking. Here's what he said. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. James tells us that it was three and a half years. Now understand something. In the ancient world, three and a half years of no rain, of no water, of not even dew collecting on the grass meant drought. There were no reservoirs. There was no water supply. There was nothing in reserve. And if for three and a half years rain doesn't fall, crops don't grow. And if crops don't grow, there's not a warehouse full of canned goods to go to and get groceries. People starve. Drought led to famine. This is really significant, this message. And it's a harsh message. But he says the God of Israel, the true God, is going to cause it not to rain. I want you to pull back in the file cabinet and bring out that one note I ask you to keep. Baal was the God of rain. So what we have here is a clash of the titans. God says it's not going to rain. Baal says I'm the God of rain. Whoever wins is the real God. So let's see. But beyond that, there's something else that is going on in this moment. And that is that some people would look at this and say it is punishment. It's really not punishment. It's consequences. There's a difference. The consequence for their idolatry is, is that God says it's not going to rain. And here's the thing. God had already told them, this is what I'm going to do. If you worship false gods, I am going to turn off the water spigot. I'm not going to let it rain. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16, which was written hundreds of years before this, here's what God said to his people. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away or serve other gods and worship them. God said, beware, don't do that. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. God said, if you do this, I'm going to cut off the water supply. It will be a consequence of your disobedience. Our generation lives with a comfortable illusion that we can sin and there never be a consequence. And in the church, we've even covered it and tried to gloss it over spiritually and said, oh, it's grace. Grace means there's no consequence for your sin. I'm going to tell you something. I believe in grace. I preach grace. That's a lie about grace. That's what that is. Consequences are built into the way God structured the universe. You can choose to sin, but you can't choose not to get the consequences of your sin. Tessica Brown ran out of hairspray in January. She was late for work. So she spritzed her hair with Gorilla Glue to hold it in place. The New Orleans resident said, I figured I could just wash it out. But it didn't. She and her mother tried vegetable oil to dissolve it, but ended up at the hospital. And they couldn't help either. She finally had to cut off her ponytail to reduce the tension as the glue painfully tightened and hardened on her scalp. By February, her story was viral, and a plastic surgeon in Los Angeles, Dr. Michael O'Bing, provided a $12,000 plastic surgery procedure, pro gratis, free, and Tessica became an instant educator on consequences. Human nature tells us that we can wash away the consequences but consequences are like gorilla glue they stick and some of us have lived with this comforting illusion that i can continue to live any way i want i can continue to go down my selfish idolatrous path and nothing's ever going to happen let me tell you something if you're a follower of jesus you will not escape the consequences. And if nothing ever happens, you better start feeling for a spiritual pulse. You say, but Bob, where where is the grace in this? You know, cutting off the water? I mean, where's the grace in that? I would say to you, it's present. This is the severe mercy of God. Sometimes His mercy is severe. To get our attention... To wake us up from our sleepwalking, to call us back to him, to grant us the grace. And here's where grace comes in. The grace of repentance that we would say, God, I've been wrong. I've been chasing the wrong things. I've been prioritizing things that are of lesser importance. I've chosen to live as if you don't exist at times. And I have thumbed my nose at your word. But God, I repent. I change my mind and I turn from it. And that's what God is calling on some of us to do. Maybe that's what God's doing in your life. Maybe it's what he's doing in the life of our church. Maybe he's moving us to repent so that seasons of refreshing can then come from him. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the life of Elijah. We thank you for the message that he speaks to us. Father, when we look around, we do live in some pretty dark days, morally and spiritually. But God, we are asking you to start with us. Lord, would you let your fire fall on each one of us Would you let your fire fall on our church? Reignite our passion for you. Burn away all of these silly, trivial things that we have decided are so important. Destroy the idols that we have looked to for safety or security or fulfillment and help us to focus on you and you alone, Jesus. God, grant us the grace of repentance.